0: This is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. John Preston Perry. I'm subbing in for Dr. Rick DeShazo today. We're talking about all kinds of things related to fertility. How do you build your family? To reach us and ask questions, just call into 1-877-672-7464, MPB-RING. We're looking forward to answering all your questions on fertility and other topics you may have relating to OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology.
1: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're
0: listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1 877 672 7464. You can always email your comments and questions to Southern Remedy at MPBOnline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. John Preston Perry. I am subbing in for Dr. Rick DeShaza today. Today, we're going to be talking about fertility, what it takes to get pregnant, what keeps people from being pregnant, what can cause miscarriage, all kinds of issues. I... I'm here with uh, two star nurses, uh, Doctor uh, Doctor <laughs> Vicky Butler. She goes way <laughs> ahead of the average person. I tell you, nurse, funded knowledge. Uh, v- Vicky, introduce yourself.
2: I'm Vicky Butler. I have been um, with University since 2003. My career um, started in OBGYN years ago in Meridian, and now um, at University, I've been in the fertility field since 2004.
0: Okay. And-
3: Hi, I'm Brittany Linton. I am also one of Dr. Perry's nurses, and um, I've been here a couple of years now. I did other other types of nursing before this, but this is my calling now, and so I really enjoy it, and y'all please call with any questions.
0: Yes, and that number, if you're calling in, is one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 672 7464 or one eight seven seven mpb ring um, You know, it, we're really lucky to bring in uh, Vicky and Brittany today because it, it takes a village not only to raise a child, but sometimes to conceive one. And I think doctors and nurses can have different perspectives on the same issues. And we're uh, really lucky to have a great team. And so I'm happy to have them here. Uh, in terms of things, you know, just to throw out a topic for things, as we've got Hurricane Cindy going on around us, uh, one of the myths people often ask about is sort of, you know, Does fertility increase after storms and weather problems, uh, issues such as that? And uh, after Katrina, people did see an increase, actually, but it was several months delayed. So what happens, minor storm, you don't think anything of it doesn't really change fertility. You know, people aren't going to remove their IUDs or anything like that. And then you have a larger storm where people are more at home, a bit bored. There can be a little bit of an increase in fertility. And then for the huge storms like uh, Katrina or, you know, you've, they always undername hurricanes. You know, if it was really terrifying, they should name it. Hurricane above, or something. that just absolutely scary to get the right response from people and instead of Hurricane Ike or something like that. And, uh, you know, those really big ones, actually, you see a drop in fertility because people are just so busy focusing on survival and boarding up the house and everything like that. But then when a lot of an area is wiped out and they have to do a lot of reconstruction, about one to three months after the reconstructions begin, um, you actually have people with an increase of jobs. They're moving to the area and they're saying, hey, we're doing well, let's start a family. And so actually with hurricanes, you can have no change or a little less or even more uh, for fertility. One of the random questions you never thought uh, to ask. I don't know. What do you guys hear about for top questions for fertility? Or what are the things patients are most likely to ask you?
3: I think the number one thing is they're going to immediately ask when they come in, they're going to say, okay, when do we get started? What's the doctor going to do for me? Um, and they don't realize that there is testing that goes into things before we start treatment. So, and another thing is cost. That's always everybody's first question. And so we do try to make all that information available up front. One of the things
2: that I've seen, Dr. Perry, is that I try to... Um, talk to patients in a way that that they understand the process but life is a puzzle sometimes mm-hmm. and sometimes we have a good border that we have put together coming into the office for fertility mm-hmm. and other times we have to start all over to find out everything about that patient
0: I agree. You know, I think half my job is debunking what Dr. Google has diagnosed people <laughs> with. Uh, there are so many things that people search on. And this gets back to also what Brittany was saying about, you know, having to do some testing first. You know, so many people have been misdiagnosed or misevaluated, and they're saying, okay, let's jump straight to therapy. And you want to be prompt. And usually you can get most of the testing done within a month, a month and a half before going into therapy. But the reality is all the therapy. You know, if a woman's an ovarian failure, you can do a lot of medications. If there are no eggs, it's going to be hard. If you want to do inseminations to help sperm find the egg, if the guy's firing blanks, it won't really uh, matter, you know, or if the tubes are blocked. So you want to understand what you're working with so that you can give people the right therapy for the right person. Uh, I mean, what do you think Is sort of the normal, what do you think people think is their normal fertility, you know, in a given chance? I I think that's the number one question. What are my odds? You know, what are my chances of getting pregnant? What do you think most people think? I
3: think they actually think that their odds are a lot better than they are once Mm -hmm. we actually look at it. You know, these people just come off of birth control and they've been on it for years and they think, oh, it'll take a month or two. And then, you know, once it's been a couple of years, that's when they'll usually come see us. But they've held out hope every single month. And their hope has not really dropped until they finally say, I just need to go see somebody.
0: Yeah. And, uh, again, by the way, if you're wanting to call in, our number is one 672 7464 mpb ring Again, 877-672-7464-MPB-RING. Um And again, this is Southern Remedy. Always have to do those station identification uh, breaks or equivalents there. You know, for the numbers for things, uh, everyone thinks, you know, chances are 20%. That's the number that's most circulated on the Internet. And maybe for someone who's been trying for a month, two months, that is their odds. In fact, 80% of women get pregnant within three months of trying. But the thing is, you know, once you're getting out, if you're 35 and you've been trying for a year, you've only a 2% chance per month. That's one of the biggest gaps between what people's expectations are and the reality. And if you're 30 and you've been trying for three years, it might be you know, closer to 1% uh, or even less than that. And so, When the odds start going down, that's where you have to start getting therapy. Everyone, I think, hears, oh my gosh, you've got to take Clomid. That's going to be what makes things. But if you're running a 1% chance per month and you're not changing the sperm, you're not changing the uterus, you're not changing the tubes, the only thing you've done is take a person from one egg to two eggs, how much did you really change those 1% odds? And so... Being able to evaluate and figure out why things are having trouble uh, is critical. You just want to have understanding. What other things do you think would be top issues that patients ask about?
3: I think one thing is that don't, I, I would say after a year, when you're young, after a year and you haven't conceived, come get help. There's nothing worse than, having a patient come in and they haven't been able to get pregnant for a long time. And then we have to tell them they waited too late. And our office is not scary whatsoever. Everybody is super nice and we will immediately (laughs) make you feel comfortable. And I know everybody's so scared and they're so anxious when we're getting their vitals. But we love our patients. and anytime the patients need anything, we're always there. And I think Vicki, you talked a little bit about how kind of the emotional aspect can be a little bit bigger the, challenge.
2: The emotions of fertility is overwhelming on a daily basis, But then when you look at it month to month, so you live out a possible pregnancy from the time that you're possibly getting pregnant through the end until you start a period. And it's almost like a cancer diagnosis over and over and over again. And that's the part that we want to be there for you. Dr. Perry mentioned Google, Dr. Google. Well, Allow your provider to be your doctor Google. Don't rely on the internet to give you all the answers. And we're there for you to provide emotional support. We have a staff of nurses that are very um, in tune to your needs, but also we have psychology support if we need to take it a step further. And you know, you've got to protect your relationship in everything that you do because ultimately, you all are in this together but sometimes it's so overwhelming and so um, unnerving to go through it that you push each other away so that's another factor that we need to
0: address one of the key things you know don't destroy the relationship for the sake of expanding it i see couples come together and they're miserable and they're stressed and um you know every time this woman has her period she's thinking oh my gosh my body's failing me and every time they have sex they're thinking okay why is that not working? And it's just causing a lot of stress. Let's talk about stress in a second. But again, I have to always go back to the number. We're 1-877-672-7464, MPB ring. Again, 877-672-7464 for uh, Southern Remedy. And again, I'm Dr. Preston Perry, uh, substituting again for Dr. Rick DeShazo and uh, uh, here with uh, Brittany Linton and Vicki Butler. The stress level for fertility, you, well, I mean, what percent of people, you know, really have no stress, would you say, for it?
3: Zero. <laughs> all of <laughs> our patients have stress and are anxious.
0: Uh, you know, and I'm joking about that because everyone thinks, oh, my gosh, this is horrible, you know, and they're trying to go it alone. And it, everyone really is going through this uh, and suffering. I mean, how much do we think that stress really impacts fertility?
2: The stress may not impact the fertility, it's the result of the stress.
0: Right, you know, and and that's something I often laugh about, you know, everyone comes in and says, oh my gosh, my stress is why I can't get pregnant. And then they're stressed about their stress, which makes it even worse the reality is we were being chased by saber-toothed tigers for thousands of years and you know the species is still around it's okay actually in fact there was one study that showed the most stressed people actually had the highest pregnancy rates and the reason was they were anxious about it and focused on it so they did something about it and so that actually matters but in terms of Actual data on stress and infertility. Um, There's good data out of Angola um, for a 100 year period. There was no contraception. Average woman had a 40% chance of being pregnant in a given month, uh, or technically it was 45%. And what they showed is if there was war and ethnic cleansing and genocide, the worst possible things. Fertility rate dropped to 42%. And when the war went away, there was a little bit of a rebound and it was 48%. And so, and they have this in Eastern Europe under economic transition, all kinds of things. And it shows the stress doesn't really change that much. Two ways primarily stress changes fertility. Number one, if you're so stressed you don't have a period, yeah, if you're not releasing an egg, that's kind of harder. So that's the one thing, but the most common thing is people start getting stressed. They start sniping at each other and fighting, and then they don't have sex, and then they aren't getting pregnant because they aren't coming together. But beyond that, stress is a minor factor in things, and so don't feel as though you know your stress level is what's keeping you from getting pregnant. For things so. Um, you, you know, back to the number. Go again, 1 877 672 7464. Let's uh, switch to take a brief uh, commercial break. Our commercial station identification. This is public radio. We're avoiding the commercials. So we'll be right back.
1: Informative MPB news stories, the local shows you love, up-to-date severe weather info, and a state and worldwide reach telling the story of Mississippi. You're listening to MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on
0: MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1 877 MPB Ring. That's 1 877 672 7464. You can always email your comments and questions to Southern Remedy at MPBOnline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Okay, and we're back. This is not Dr. Rick, but Dr. Preston. And uh, we're here talking all things, uh, fertility and a lot of other issues for OBGYN and uh, how to get pregnant, recurrent miscarriage, all kinds of things. Uh, what do you think uh, are the top issues that keep people from getting pregnant? You know, what does it happen- Sometimes it's
2: cycles. They're not having cycles at regular times, and they think, oh, well, I just drop an egg. Just, you know, the understanding of what truly happens with the cycle. So that's one of the things.
0: And by the way, that was uh a. uh, Mrs. Vicki Butler, one of our, our charge nurse and just absolutely awesome as well as we've got Brittany Linton also one of our star nurses here with us today and talking about why people aren't getting pregnant. So we talked about irregular cycles for things and again if you don't have an egg, it's kind of hard to get pregnant. Uh, now is it just too much weight that can cause people from getting pregnant or can too little also be an issue?
2: Absolutely, too little can also be that issue.
0: Yeah, again, Mississippi, we don't have as much of that as a <laughs> problem, but at the same time, if you're a professional athlete or just exercising constantly, uh, you know, sometimes people start having irregular cycles that's not PCOS, and that has to be addressed as well. So a happy medium uh, is good for uh you know, optimizing fertility. At the same time, everyone points to their weight and says, oh, I've got to lose a few pounds before I can get pregnant. Granted, if you're overweight, that may make for a less healthy pregnancy. You don't want to get diabetes of pregnancy, preeclampsia, uh, shoulder dystocia, which is stuck shoulders, all kinds of things that can cause problems uh, for pregnancies. But at the same time, uh, it's a rarely a major factor uh, delaying people from getting pregnant. By the way, again, we've got to give our phone number here. It's uh, again, 1-877-672-7464 MPB Ring. Again, one eight seven seven MPB Ring or one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. What other things, Brittany? Do you see a lot of?
3: I would say people coming in with tubal issues. Um, When people are younger and they've gotten sexually transmitted diseases or infections, they don't as much think about their future fertility because a lot of our patients had it when they were 18, 19, and then they're in their later 20s or 30s wondering, why haven't I got pregnant yet? And so that's one thing that we see, and that's where, you know, educating your children on STIs and that kind of stuff really comes into play because it can affect things later in life. Yeah.
0: And actually, this is a really big issue for uh, Mississippi. We are right now have the highest prevalence of chlamydia in the U.S. Uh, or Washington, D.C., uh, Alaska, U.S. Virgin Islands, apparently not so virgin. Um, all of these <laughs> places have uh, you know comparable rates, but apart from those, we're really the highest. And um, the, The thing is, 85% of women who've had chlamydia don't know they have it, and so they're having block tubes, they're having trouble getting pregnant, and this is something that could have potentially been prevented. Um, as well as should have been tested or identified but they dismiss it as a stomach bug or something lapses and uh, consequently they have problems down the road this is the other thing a single episode of symptomatic chlamydia or gonorrhea can lead to a 20% chronic rate of pelvic pain so beyond just fertility we want to address infections and help uh, prevent them from happening We're talking a lot about the women, but I'll bet guys play a role as well in things. It takes two to tango.
2: It does. And so sperm issues are there. And we see frequently patients come in, um, they've gone through puberty the way the guys come in, they've gone through puberty the way they're supposed to, but then something's not right and they recognize that. Or possibly they don't recognize it. And there's no sperm there. Mm. Um, You start searching and trying to figure why, you know. Oh, my mom said that when I was born, I had undescended testicles or something of that nature. So there's more to the story that we have to dig and we
0: have to find that history. What do you think was the top group we see for male factor infertility? Testosterone use. Testosterone (laughs) use is very big. Or
3: diabetic people who... have retrograde ejaculation. Yeah.
0: So sometimes with testosterone use, the brain is saying, hey, I've got plenty of testosterone. And I don't need to do anything to get the testicles to do their job. And so the brain doesn't send the signal and then the testes don't make the sperm. For diabetes, you can have had bad diabetes, recover and be well, but it changes the nerves around the penis in a way that actually it can make it so that the sperm doesn't come out normally, even if there's fluid, it won't be in the sperm and actually later comes out in the urine and that can be tested. Another group I just often see is long distance truckers. Now, if you're driving these long distances, listen to MPB. But beyond (laughs) that also, you might want to get evaluated because a lot of the long distance truckers, I find they end up sort of under exercising because they're just in the cab all day. They take food and stimulants and all kinds of things to keep them going. And then they gain weight. And then the weight, they have these large thighs that sort of squishes the testes really there. And you wonder why the testes are outside the body. They actually did this study in France. I have no idea who would ever volunteer for it, but they had this magic underwear that elevated scrotal temperature by two degrees. And... You know, again, they did it for 16 hours a day, where effectively that would be the equivalent of being inside the body, or with, again, large thighs, or sort of squishing the testes. And what it showed is it took guys from 80 million sperm down to zero. And it did so very quickly. And this is where people worry about hot tubs. I'm not a person as impressed with boxers versus briefs or things. Hot tubs can do stuff a little bit. Uh, Laptops on the lap, actually. Uh, The heat tends to go right to the thighs a little bit, and that can sometimes have an effect. But, uh, you know, watching the temperature of the thighs can have an impact on whether or not uh, guys have uh, male factor or not. Um, You know... So we worry about the sperm. I always say that fertility isn't easy, but it is simple. You only need four things to get pregnant. Guy's got to have sperm. Woman's got to have eggs. They've got to meet in the tubes and have a place to go in the uterus. We've talked about eggs. We've talked about sperm, talked a bit about the tubes. What do you both see for, you know, uterine issues where people aren't getting pregnant as well?
3: Fibroids. <laughs>
0: Fibroids. <laughs> Or fireballs. Sometimes (laughs) Fibroids uh, and polyps. Those are two of
3: the concerning things that we typically find. And when the fibroids are inside the uterus where a baby would implant, you can see up to an 80% miscarriage rate. And so that's something, you know, if you're having heavy periods, they're really painful. That may signal you that you may want to get checked out by your physician just to make sure that that's not what you have going on.
2: Right. Another
3: thing is the misshapen
2: uterus that yes. can come up. It doesn't arise as often, or we don't see it as often, but that certainly is, you know, a didelphus uterus right. or something
0: of that nature. Yeah, the, Vicky is very tactfully bringing up uh, a complicated condition called Mullerian anomalies, where the uterus actually doesn't start out as just one piece. It's actually two pieces that start off by the kidneys and come together. And sometimes they don't fuse. And we see patients where they have two uteruses or two vaginas or all kinds of things that just don't exactly make sense the way you would think the body doesn't always read the book but the good thing is a lot of these things can be fixed and repaired and uh, return people to normal chances for things um just to send out our phone number again, we're one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or one eight seven seven MPB Ring. I'm Dr. Preston Perry subbing in for Dr. Rick DeChazo today, and here with uh, Vicky Butler and Brittany Linton uh, for, as star nurses. Um, we're answering all questions, fertility and. A bunch of other things for OBGYNs, so just call us or come up with things, stump the docs, see what you can come up with and we'll uh, have fun answering it. Um one other thing people are always asking about is does being on the birth control pill affect my fertility? Um how of you know do are we really worried about that? We really aren't
3: worried about that.
2: Um from my standpoint, um
3: well, I think a lot of people come in and they say, oh, my goodness, I've been on birth control for five years and I've never taken a break. And now I think that's why it's taken me so long to get pregnant. When in all actuality, the month that you come off of it and have that first period, you have a greater chance of becoming pregnant. Yeah. Um,
0: Slightly higher chance of twins, actually, that month you come off. the pillow. And so
3: that's one of, but I hear everybody say that. Friends of mine, females that I know, they always think that and I want to say I've even, you know, had a doctor tell me that before. Um, And so it's just interesting to hear it um, from our doctors.
0: It's a myth. Oh, go ahead. And the
3: pills
2: almost are there and protective in some ways in um, your cycle control and ovaries, um, not producing cyst every month for someone that has cyst.
0: There are some really... um effective and powerful things about birth control pills. Um, but at the same time, the one thing I would say where pills can have in fact, it wasn't the pill, it was why you went on it. So if you had always irregular periods because you had PCOS and the pill was to hide or treat the PCOS, you know, coming off it you might go back to where you were before. And so that can be an issue. Or let's say you had really bad endometriosis, which relates to chronic pelvic pain and other issues. If you are coming off the pill that was treating your endometriosis, that endometriosis now pops up more, that can be a negative effect. But again, for the it's the technical term is called convounding by indication. The problem isn't that you had a problem, it's why you needed a particular therapy. And so it's really uh, not that much of an issue. Um, You know, patients are also always worried about whether they're ovulating or not. You know, how does a person know if they're ovulating?
3: It should be if they're having regular periods, they should be ovulating. I think one of the main things that I tend to see is some people say, well, my periods have just always been irregular. That's normal for me. Well, for everybody out there, that is not normal. Um, You know, especially around here, we tend to see a lot of PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that is where you have an overabundance of eggs. And so the way I like to explain it to patients is think about a bunch of people trying to go through the gate at a football game. It'd be very, very hard for one person to run through the crowd and break free of the crowd and that's kind of the same thing with your eggs it's hard for them to release because there's so many and so it's not you know it's not a bad thing by any means it you know makes a little bit harder to lose weight and may predispose you more to diabetes and hypertension and that kind of thing but with medicine you can start ovulating and so that's one thing that I think is something needs to be talked about a little bit
0: more. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, point. and I, I like that analogy. I might switch to that <laughs> one. There you go. There, uh, come on, Mississippi, got to have football here. That's right. Uh, the, the the thing about it is ultimately people have too many eggs. Everyone thinks they lose one egg per month. It's closer to nine hundred. And they're all just breaking down. And usually you can see about 6 or 8 in an ovary at a given time in the average person. And then, of course, with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, you just have so many. It's like you'll find usually at least 12, but often I can see 20. We've had people this week where it's 60-plus eggs in an ovary. And so when they're 10 times the average woman, you can see how they got a lot of people lining up to get through that turnstile and they just get gridlocked and nobody makes its way through. Um and often weight loss or being on medications can help uh, people ovulate. For people of regular cycles, you pretty much are ovulating. And and so I'm while you can use LH predictor kits, I'm not a fan of that. Honestly, it just takes time, effort, things like that. Everyone thinks they have to have sex on the day of ovulation in order to get pregnant. Uh it's sort of like you know this fertility fire drill, you know, people are taking the LH predictor kit. It's positive, go, go, go and they're <laughs> rushing home and it's absolutely crazy. You don't need that. If you if sperm live 72 hours in the reproductive tract for most women, you can have relations on the 11th, 14th and 17th days of the month or 12th, 15th, 18th. You know, there's some flexibility based on Lifestyle, what evening events you have, all that other stuff. But you can actually do it without having to test. And you certainly don't need basal body temperature charting. I personally hate basal body temperature charting with a passion. It's fun from an experimental standpoint, you know, to understand the body and what it's doing. But the reality is it tells you after you've ovulated. I've had people tell me, oh, my gosh, my temperature just went up. This is exactly the moment to have sex no, that was kind of two, three days ago. You should have. So it's a little bit too late and they're driving themselves crazy. They're getting up at the same time every uh, day and, uh, you know, just testing that. And they don't really need to do that. I think we have a uh, patient or a person on the line. Uh, hello, Jessica from Jackson. Give us a question.
4: Um. Yes, I was wondering. I had my tubes tied a couple of years ago, and i was wanting to know if I could still get pregnant.
0: Okay. Yes. So yes and no. So first, hopefully, the uh, if they did it right, um, your tubes are still blocked, so you won't be able to spontaneously get pregnant. But about two three percent of people, a clip falls off or something like that can happen, and that can interfere with things. So, how old are you? Thirty five. Thirty five. Good. So you're young. Everyone says, oh my gosh, 35 is advanced maternal age and all that. That's actually not that bad uh, for things. The key thing is how you go about sort of fixing it. And there are two ways to really go about it. One is to do a tubal reversal. And that's where you go in and surgically sort of take out the blocked area and put the tubes back together. Now, did they burn the tubes or did they cut them or how did they uh, treat the tubes? Uh, I'm not sure. Okay. We're, um, was this just after a delivery? Yes. Okay. After my last child. Okay. So usually at that point, they're, either, they're cutting a bit of it, uh, and so less likely to do clips, and uh, they sometimes burn it. Sometimes people remember a little bit of a smell of smoke or being told that, and usually those are ones that are a little bit harder to put back together relative to the clips. Classically... When you do a tubal reversal at 35, you have about a 70% chance of being pregnant. What they don't tell you with that statistic is it's only a 35% take-home baby rate. And that can be, again, a little worse if they burnt it or took out a lot of the tube. And the reason is half the pregnancies after tubal reversal end up being ectopic pregnancies or miscarriages. And the goal is not just to get you pregnant, it's to bring home a baby. And so the alternative to doing that would be to do in vitro fertilization, where you stimulate the ovaries, get a few extra eggs, and then you put the sperm with them. And then you put usually one at the most, in your case, one or at the most two embryos back. And that has a really low rate of multiples, but a very high rate of pregnancy. And usually you see at 35, for someone who's had a tubal, around an 80% take-home baby rate relative to about 35 35% for tubal reversal.
4: Okay, so we can do that without giving having the tubal reversal.
0: Correct. You can right. just say let's bypass the uh, tubes. And again, classically people were saying, you know, uh, to about 35, 38 it was a break even point for whether you did reversal versus IVF people are moving more and more towards IVF. The reason being IVF has just become far more effective, which is in vitro fertilization, um, because it's just become more effective over the years. And there are a lot of things with uh, the economics of it that work out a bit better. Um, My wife is an economist. She always says to me, it's not enough getting people pregnant. It's dollars spent per pregnancy achieved. How are you doing it as cheaply as possible? And so we're just paying attention to where's your best value? Uh, in terms of bringing home a baby okay well thank you sure thank you for calling and again if your other people are wanting to call in our number is one 672 7464 and that's 1-877-MPB-RING we'll be right back after this brief pause and take your questions on fertility and other aspects of gynecology
1: Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from you, our listeners. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. And we're
0: back. This is uh, Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Preston Perry, subbing in for Dr. Rick DeShazo. I'm here with Vicki Butler and Brittany Linton, uh, two wonderful nurses, and we're taking your questions on fertility. We've got first uh, Denise in uh, Tupelo uh, calling on ovulation and medicine. What can we tell you about? Um, Thank you all
4: for taking my call. I have PCOS. I've had it for some years now. And you mentioned or,
2: or I wanted to mention that there's medicine that you can take to um, make you ovulate. And yes. I just wonder if y'all could just expand on some of those
4: medicines. Sure. So, and I can, just, I can just hang up and listen to your Okay,
0: questions. sure. It sounds good. Okay. So what medications do we use usually?
3: Um, so the typical medication that we use is called letrozole. And this is the thing that it's used for. It's really used in cancer patients, but they found that some of these women who were taking it started getting pregnant. And so now we use it um, for a short period of time, though, to help with ovulation. And so basically this just stimulates the ovaries, maybe polycystic ovaries. It stimulates them to ovulate. And we like to get, you know, get you to ovulate maybe two eggs a month. And that increases your chances. Um, and so you usually take it for five days. And then hopefully you responded. And then, you know, but we do recommend ultrasound, especially when you have PCOS, because you're more at risk for over-responding.
0: Right. We don't want you to turn into, you know, Kate Gosselin, where uh, that can happen if you're not getting the right dose. And this is why we use letrozole instead of clomid. People classically use clomiphene, um, but that ends up having a lower rate of response, a higher rate of multiples, uh, more hot flashes, and a lower take-home baby rate. So letrozole has now been shown to be probably the better medication for people with uh, uh, subfertility that's from irregular menses related to PCOS. Okay, we've got another caller, uh, Mary from Brandon. Hello, Mary.
4: Hi. Um, I just wondered if you could talk some about the psychological issues. I went through infertility over 20 years ago and I actually do have a child. Wonderful. Um, But You know, one of the things I found so stressful was everybody thinking they know what to tell you to do. People telling you, um, oh, just relax. People, you know, all sorts of advice. And I thought to myself, well, relaxing is going to help because I got black tooth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
4: And and people would say things to you like, oh, my gosh, you're 30. You know, they knew how old I was. I was 35. And they'd say, oh, you don't have any children? Do you not want? And, you know, some people assume because I was a professional woman that I didn't want children, which wasn't true. And um, maybe more than anything else, I just want to let the listeners know, please give these people trying to get pregnant a
0: break (laughs) this is an awesome question and statement and definitely needs to be said the reality is 80 or even 90 percent of fertility issues have an underlying cause so telling a person yeah relax that's not going to fix blocks block tubes you know everyone says oh you've got to lose weight that'll be what gets you pregnant If the woman loses weight and the guy has no sperm, they're still not getting pregnant. And so most of the advice is harmful um, because people are presuming they know what's going on for a medical diagnosis. And remember, the American Medical Association has said that infertility is a disease. It is a medical condition that needs to be treated appropriately. And if 80, 90% of it has an underlying cause, you don't say, oh, just relax away your cancer. Oh, you know, take a vacation, you know, your emphysema will clear up. Infertility is the same way. And absolutely, people really need to, unless they are capable to give advice on asthma and diabetes and hypertension and all those other things, they may not want to give advice on fertility because they're not treating the actual disease. Fantastic question. Okay, next we have uh, Maggie uh, calling in on a placental abruption. Yes, Maggie, what can we talk about?
4: Hi. Um, actually, you helped me get pregnant um, oh. with my son.
0: And um, <laughs> we... Uh, sorry, go ahead. I was laughing. I could hear in the background. Good, thank you. I, I won't uh, out you or say anything more. I will only reiterate what you say to us today. Absolutely.
4: That's actually, my daughter, turns out, I could get pregnant pregnant really easy after the first one yes um but so with my first son we did iui right. and um i ended up let me take you off so i can oh no um, i ended up having a placental abruption at 34 weeks oh gosh. and um i didn't know if that had something to do with the iui if it was related and i had a healthy pregnancy and birth with my daughter a year and a half later what are, what's my likelihood of having another
0: abruption? That was a, a great question. And there's a lot of limited data on that. We wish there was a more. So for a couple things, first, does insemination or IVF cause an increase in adverse outcomes? And people talk about abruption, they talk about um, you know, placenta previa, they talk about multiple things with that. And the answer is it's complex. Uh, the the one thing that everyone agrees about is again there's a degree of confounding by indication if you have you know PCOS that predisposes you to hypertension which can in turn increase your rate of abruption. If you look at people, for instance, who have had um, recurrent pregnancy loss, they can have scarring in the uterus that can give them uh, from DNCs that can give them more placental previous. There are all kinds of little things. And while there may be a bit of a higher rate from fertility therapy, it's often the people who need the therapy that have higher rates and not just the fact that you had the therapy. Also, on a related note, if there are multiples, you have twins. Things are more inherently complicated with twins as well. Can there be some things with insemination or IVF that do increase it you know, just because you had the therapy? There's debate about that. And I think we need better data, but it's often not so Radical an increase that we're saying overwhelmingly okay. This is what we need to tell people before getting pregnant. Now, for instance, IVF in vitro fertilization. I do talk a little bit about about higher rate of blood clots with pregnancy, for example. But it's not so much that people would be anticoagulated. Um, but so, I don't think we cause it. I'm glad you were pregnant, and I'm glad you've been pregnant since then. Yes, um, but I don't I,
3: think you caused it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, it was a great question, and thank you for calling it. Great to talk with you. That's the, you. the In the background, that's music to my ears. <laughs> her, her cry, so way to go. Okay. For uh, other things that were, you know, I think a lot of people were sort of asked about, I always get asked, honestly, does the position matter? Um, It seems silly and like people turn conception into a game of twister with, you know, legs in the air and their, you know, hips up and they have to stay like that for 10 minutes. Um, I've never been impressed with the data for that. You know, what do you guys think?
2: I think sperm are going to find its way regardless of the position you have during a sexual experience. Yeah.
0: I think it takes actually all of two minutes for sperm to reach the uterus and five minutes to make the tubes. If you have, and they live for three days, if you, you know, have the perfect position and it gets there in four minutes and 30 seconds instead of five minutes, you're probably not really uh, changing much of anything. Um, how long do you think people should go? Before getting advice. Oh, by the way, I've got to do the one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four MPB ring again. One eight seven seven MPB ring or one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. And you can also reach us online at uh, Southern Remedy at MPBOnline dot org. Um, and uh, yeah, so what do you guys think about that? For just uh, how long should people try before they say, "Hey, I need some advice"?
3: I mean, if you're, you know, if you're very early starting, you're in your early 20s and it's even been six months, I may would go ahead and start meeting with your OBGYN to see about getting a referral because we definitely want to see you after a year. Um, the, you know, we sometimes have people come in and it's been 15 years and it's just too late sometimes. So go ahead earlier than later and see what can be done because it's not everybody's Fear is, oh, it's going to be so scary, and I'm so anxious, and everything I'm going to do is going to hurt. I mean, typically things that we do in the office really don't hurt. I mean, and I know it's a little bit different, a scary experience for some, but I encourage you, if you are considering and it's been a little while, definitely go see your doctor.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry. I I was just going to say, Brittany, sometimes um, people don't come because insurance doesn't cover it and and that is something that holds you back but unless you come to start a process you're not going to know um what pathway that you need to take in that right. mississippi doesn't have the best coverage for infertility although through um what we've seen recently there is more um ability to have insurance that has some coverage so Don't not calm because of that.
0: And again, people should get evaluated for other health issues. You have PCOS, you have endometriosis, you have fibroids. These are things that even if you never want a child, should be evaluated. The other thing, you know, for pain, uh, which you were talking about, everyone's worried about that, but a lot of that comes from really a fear of hysterosalpingograms, the HSG test that's been around for over 100 years. And as a team, we... Just recently published a new test for fertility, uh, which Really, is gold standard for your ovaries, gold standard for your uterus, and we invented this portion that looks at the tubes, and you can do that all in a single visit in the office. We we actually call it the periscope technique. So (laughs) you're looking at the tubes from underwater. The uh, original name of it was hysteroscopic assessment of fallopian tubal patency, which was not only a mouthful, but then we found it made the lousy acronym of half to pee. (laughs) Hysteroscopic assessment of fallopian tubal patency. (laughs) Nobody wants a half to pee procedure, so we came up with it. We're calling it periscope. uh, and so,
2: and that's you know, P-A-R-R-Y-S-E-R-P-E. Well, yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, for um, Dr. Perry, you know, I had to do something uh, there. But, uh, but the thing is, most people say that's less than a pap smear, um, in terms of discomfort for our testing, because we can often even do it without a speculum. And so, uh, I think being gentle matters for care. I've never had someone say, oh, um. OBGYN could be more painful and it would be okay. We want something that's uh, more gentle for things. Okay, we've got another caller, on, and we're just going to be uh, talking to her in a minute. Um, and uh, Teresa, um, what's going on?
4: Hi, I would like to know what's the possibility of a 50-year-old having a successful pregnancy during um, after having IVF?
0: So, okay. Great question. So, uh, you know, you do hear about people, you know, recently 67 going on to IVF and things like that. The national guidelines really have sort of tied our hands at 50. First, you know, you look at Cheryl Teagues at uh, 52 claimed she used her own eggs for it. The only way that makes sense to me, and I can't say whether she did or not, but the only way that makes sense is if by her own eggs, she means she paid for them uh, and got them from someone else. The data that's out there says by 45, using your own eggs, there's only a 1% chance of success with IVF. However, if you use donor egg when you're 45, you can have, again, 80, 90% take-home baby rates. It works fairly well. Uh, the, and that's cumulatively. Just putting one back it would be about a 50% chance. So this would be with a few tries from a single cycle. Uh, but the thing is, at 50, the problem is for using donor egg is that you get so much increase in risk for hypertension, diabetes of pregnancy, preeclampsia, and other things that could potentially even kill you, we, which you don't want. Usually, we tend to uh, not do things at 50 and above uh, as a sort of national guidelines for um, conceiving with donor egg. We wish we could help you, and there are a lot of other things that can, I think, advance people, you know, uh, being a, you know, foster mom, be you know, adoption, there are all kinds of other things, but uh, unfortunately, at 50, we wish we'd seen you a few years uh, prior to this.
4: Right, okay. I have another question. Sure. What would be the possibility of my eggs being able to be transferred into a friend of mine and she w-
0: she could be a carrier for me. So your eggs though, unfortunately, so at about 40, about three quarters of your eggs are chromosomally abnormal. And by 45, it's upwards of 90, even 95% of them are abnormal. And by 50, um, it would be, you know, above 95% would be abnormal. And if you stimulated the ovaries at 50, you'd probably only, you'd get one egg two eggs maybe at the most, of which 95% would be abnormal. And so, you you know, usually you'd be talking about $15,000 or more in cost at that point for, you know, a less than 5% and probably less than 1% take-home baby rate from that. And so... Dollar spent per pregnancy achieved, it wouldn't probably give you the value that you wanted. However, I do see a lot of people, for example, they'll say, let's get an egg donor. We'll end up then uh, getting a, a friend to carry the pregnancy. and My husband's sperm can fertilize that egg and it would still be our child and we'd raise it together and things like that. And that would be probably a higher yield approach than something that would cost you a lot of money with very little to show for it. But then again, you know, there's Sarah out there, I mean, there, you know, things have happened and the body doesn't always read the book. And I, I never say 0%. I've seen people with the worst odds get pregnant. I've seen people with great odds, uh, successful and, uh, you just never can tell, uh, what God has in store for people. All right. This has been Southern Remedy. And thank you again for your calls, your thoughts. Uh, Join us next Wednesday um, for uh, another wonderful show. And it's been a privilege speaking to you. I'm Dr. Preston Perry with uh, Ms. Vicki Butler and Brittany Linton. Thanks for calling.